Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is all sorts of additional information that you're missing out on if you haven't just gone to wealthformula.com and downloaded some of that stuff, including my best-selling book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Uh, you can also simply get that by texting me at uh, 44222 and typing Wealth Formula, one word. I also want to remind you that if you just can't get enough of Wealth Formula and Buck Joffrey, now that's me speaking in third person, there's a couple of other things that you can do. One, as I've mentioned on a couple of different occasions, is to join Wealth Formula Network and also get, uh, as part of that, get a phenomenal course uh, with the likes of Tom Wheelwright, Kevin Dade, uh, who's that, Ken McElroy, Dean Graziosi, me, et cetera, et cetera, Christian Allen. Anyway, lots of really great names to get you up to speed, right? To get you up to speed. This is a very, very high-quality course. Um, you know, it, it's it in and of itself is phenomenal. But then on top of that, you then get to be part of the Wealth Formula Network, which comes with a private Facebook page, a private forum with additional content, and also bi-weekly mastermind calls, which have been a big highlight. So far, uh, you know, we've had a number of topics. We've had guests, like uh, we actually had Kevin Day and um, we had Christian Allen on another one. Uh, we'll have some other people that you can sort of direct your questions at one-on-one in a group. It's it's really fun. It's really, I think, something that I think most people are considering the highlight of the group. So make sure to check that out. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. It's pretty cheap too, guys. Come on. This is not, you know, this is not that expensive. There's people who are charging a lot of stuff for things around and this is just a, a entry fee to get you in, and and it's a pretty it's a pretty darn good deal, I got to tell you. And um, anyway, so let's let's talk about uh, other things. Now, I don't want to turn this into Buck is ranting day, but I have to tell you, man, am I tired of hearing people with a lot less money than me shilling out financial advice? Because when I hear this. You know, when I see this, when I read this, I have to actively suppress my temper uh, because people forward me this stuff all the time. It'll be an article. It's like a newsletter. 
something that somebody wrote in a blog or a public forum, something written by somebody who is clearly clueless and not wealthy. I mean, what's the point of even reading that, right? That is the fundamental problem with the Internet. Sometimes it's just like everybody's an authority, just like everybody can write a book, right? There are a lot of know-it-alls in this um, world, in this financial podcasting world. Uh, in fact, I will just say that. And, and, and again, I'm not saying it's everybody, but there are some people giving some bad advice. And you have to ask yourself, should I listen to this person? Does this person make more money than me? You know, that's that's a that's a very good rule of thumb that I use, and it and it may not sound nice, and maybe it's not PC, but for heaven's sake, don't take advice from people who make less money than you. Don't take financial advice. That is, you can take advice on you know whatever yoga or well being or whatever you want to, but don't take financial advice from people who make less money than you. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying. Don't listen to new ideas, okay? You know, sometimes these uh, young guns out there, and I know lots of them, uh, you know, they, they, they come up with some great ideas or they bring something to your attention you may not know. you got to pay attention. But make sure that you take everything with a grain of salt, regardless of how adamant they may seem. Now, you know, before you start thinking, gosh, man, Buck is really acting like he is full of himself, you know, like he's the ultimate authority on matters of wealth. Let me tell you that this advice that I'm giving you comes from a place of humility rather than conceit. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go through my 120-some or 30-some, whatever many podcasts I've done, you'll hear me contradict myself. You'll hear me say different things early on in the podcast um, history than you might now. You might hear me talking about certain products, you know, like, you know, the latest example was, you know, self-directed IRAs. And now now I'm saying that, you know, I didn't know about QRPs. And all of a sudden, if you go back and listen to my podcast with, with Damian Lupo, I think QRPs are a much better deal. Why, why am I saying that? Well, because I didn't know about QRPs. And Damian's a smart young guy, and he's convinced me that it's a great product. So, you know, that's what I, that's what I would do. It's not financial advice. In most cases, I'm going to tell you that I've changed my mind or, or learned something I didn't know about before, and I'll tell you about on the air because that's why I'm doing this in the first place. This whole thing is about trying to learn for me and to hopefully share that with you. You see, the truth of the matter is, I don't think that I'm the smartest person in the room all the time. I don't. Every day I get smarter and I try to get in the room uh, with somebody smarter than me so that I can leech off some of that intelligence and you know and when someone tells me about a, a, a new concept or even ask me one that I previously dismissed I mean uh, various life insurance pro products are a very good example of this I look at it with a fresh pair of eyes and an open mind and sometimes I'm like wow I didn't see that or wow you can structure that totally different way and it becomes a completely different product now if you're not willing to do that it's going to be really hard for you to grow. And I, and I mean that both intellectually and financially. And for me, I'm always looking to see what the people with more zeros on their net worth, uh, you know, on their personal financial statement, 
people with more zeros on their uh, personal financial statement than me are doing because I want to do what they're doing. A good example of that, by the way, is the family office industry. You know, this is how a lot of uh, people who are worth nine, ten figures, um, how they invest. You know, they've got an entire office dedicated to deploying their capital. Um, and by the way, I should tell you that it's no coincidence that some of the operators that I've introduced to my accredited investor club are groups with whom family offices invest frequently. I'm not saying that that's why I chose them, but I am saying that it certainly was a factor to look at where the big money is and who they're trusting. You know, I'm just not, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to invest my money with somebody who has a full-time job who's uh, going to apparently manage a $20 million asset, uh, you know, on their lunch break. I'm not going to do it, you know. So the point is, again, that when you see what family offices are doing, you're watching uh, the investing habits of centimillionaires. And I think it's probably reasonable to believe that it's going to be a lot more impactful to our wealth, our collective wealth, you, me, Wealth Formula Nation, to watch what they're doing rather than reading a blog post from a podcaster or from a blogger or whatever, who's never seen seven figures. Now, again, I don't want to, <laughs> hope I'm not being too harsh here, but oh, I, get, I get pretty irritated by it. Anyway, in that spirit of, again, following people who are doing better than yourself, showing humility and learning from those, rather than taking advice from people who make less than you, I'm delighted to have, uh, again, on this week's uh, show, Richard C. Wilson. He's been on the Wealth Formula podcast before. He's the founder of the Family Office Club and a guy to know in the industry if you want to know what is top of mind for the ultra-high net worth individual these days. So when we come back, Richard C. Wilson. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast, uh, he's been on before. His name is Richard C. Wilson. Richard uh, helps net worth families, uh, high net worth families of, of say about 100 million plus create and manage their single family offices. 
He currently manages 14 clients, including mandates uh, with three billionaire families and is the CEO of a $500 million single family office and heads uh, uh, and, and is the head of direct investments for another $200 million plus in assets. He's also the author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, uh, which is called The Single Family Office, Creating, Operating, and Managing the Investments of a Single Family Office, and a recently uh, uh, released book, How to Start a Family Office, Blueprints for Setting Up Your Single Family Office. Richard, welcome back to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, just to get people caught up a little bit, tell us exactly what a family office is and sure. I mean, kind of how did you get involved in the space? Sure. Uh, essentially, a family office is a wealth management solution for those that are ultra wealthy. So the wealthier you get, the more that a 1% or a 3% mistake, either on selling an asset at the wrong time, so it's a tax mistake, or regulatory fines, or you're paying too much in fees, etc., can really add up to a lot of money. And you could have paid for a full-time team, perhaps, just to prevent those types of mistakes and reduce chaos in your personal life and get your regulatory and licensing related affairs or legal structures uh, all tied up, et cetera. So essentially a family office is put in place to help have a more holistic 360 degree oversight of your balance sheet. So is there, is there advantages to the, um, the family offices other than obviously having, um, you know, people to watch this and make sure there's not 1% errors and execution and that sort of thing. But is there also leverage that's created, um, you know, for the investments themselves? For sure. Uh, I had a call this morning with a professional athlete that's worth around $40 million. And we had this exact same conversation. Uh, and essentially, <clears throat> the solution providers themselves should be seen as an investment. And there should be a good ROI from that investment. You know, you should get good financial reporting from your accountant or the tax advice from your tax attorney or tax accountant should more than pay for uh, that professional's fees. And many times uh, there's such a good return on getting the right advice in that area. It might pay for a good percentage of your whole family office's cost. And what's interesting is that um, <clears throat> some people that are 20 million to hundred million or even up to 200 million sometimes say, oh, well, I don't know if I want to pay the fees to have a family office. And I always tell them, well, unless you're going to sit on cash and then there's an opportunity cost and inflation eating away at you there, you're going to be paying fees no matter where you go. Don't think you're avoiding the family office fees by going straight to the private bank because they're charging you more layers of fees than almost anyone else on planet Earth. And they're usually not too transparent with them. Uh, if you go to a multifamily office or a traditional wealth management firm, there's fees for the part of assets they manage. So anywhere you go, there's going to be fees. It's just a matter of what is most aligned and who do you feel most comfortable with and how do you create a solution that gives you the reality that you want to live within uh, going forward now that you've had this liquidity event or now that you've looked around and realized that you might want to have a family office in place. So, and just for clarity, because um, this is something that I, I've kind of recently kind of figured out is a little different. A family office doesn't necessarily mean just one family, right? It could be... Right multiple, you know, uh, high net worth individuals who are, are um, consolidated into this, this vehicle. Is that correct? Right, that's correct. So a single family office is when it's just for one individual or one family. And a multifamily office is essentially a wealth management firm that's more holistic, 
more 360 degree and they might serve three or four clients or they might serve 30 clients or some that have 500 clients that are all worth $10 million or more. And that's typically the threshold that people will talk about is if you're at $10 million or higher, uh, you might become a client of somebody's multifamily office. Um, and that's the difference between the two types, single and single and multi. And, and, um, and again, just for clarity, when you work with a family office, are you, is effectively, you know, the, you, you, we call the fees, but in this case, it's really overhead, right? Um, right. Are you paying employees? Or are you still sort of commission-based at that point? Um, well, I think that, I think we need to back up one half step just to make my previous statement more clear for your next question. So the single family office, they are, is basically your overhead. Uh, if you then decide as a single family office investment organization that you want to invest in a private equity fund manager or a real estate deal, that deal, that fund manager or independent sponsor might have their own fee structures. Yeah. Uh, the difference is you're paying overhead and then the fees uh, instead of paying a flat you know, wealth management fee to a third party who hopefully most of that asset management fee is going towards things you need. But as a single family office, you just put in place the things that you need the most. And if you don't do a lot of charitable giving now, maybe you don't have a head of philanthropy on the team, which, you know, a multifamily office or private bank might have that resource internally. Um, but essentially, uh, the smaller single family offices will call themselves a virtual family office when they have just one or two employees or a an outsourced kind of CEO of the organization that might just be working part-time and helping manage their single family office. So in that case, they're keeping the structure very lean because they don't want to have the cost of it be a high percentage of their assets perhaps per year. Uh, and then typically every 50 million in, in net worth is typically one to two more professionals added to the team is a good rule of thumb. So a $400 million family, you know, it's usually going to have, you know, eight to 16 uh, team members could have far more, it could have far less. I've met an $800 million family that just had one person running everything and he just outsourced everything <laughs> and only traded some of the ETFs for the family and everything else was outsourced to about 50 different fund managers. And, you know, uh, they were having trouble keeping up with it all, but they did it with one person. So yeah. it just depends on the family. A big insurance policy on that one guy, I guess. Yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in one of the other things I just want to mention is, is um, you know, having a, I worked with operators um, myself with my my investor club um, mm -hmm. and operators that often work with family offices. Um, the family office structure sometimes provides a better deal than the retail investor. Um, in other words, you know, say there's a split, a certain split um, that an operator usually uses when they're raising capital on their own. Um, if, you know, uh, what I've found is that if you're able to say, well, we'll bring five, $10 million of equity, um, that the deal may sometimes sweeten on the side of the investor. Um, so that's, I presume that's one of the major advantages as well. For sure. I think yeah. a savvy team or just individual or two helping you manage a single family office could pay for half of their own cost or their whole cost just through fee negotiations. I think a lot of people want to have more anchor family office investors who could add strategic insight or help with adding credibility to what somebody is doing inside their investment firm. So a lot of times people just want to get the deal done and they won't say it, but they might be very flexible on fees more so than you'd imagine. And uh, also um, to your earlier question, I think it's important to note that those listening who work in wealth management or private banking, the family office, industry growth, which is growing every year, 
doesn't have to be a bad thing for your business because if you know about the trend and you're you know up on it then when somebody brings it up you can help them get into place parts of a single family office or bring them family office quality service providers and almost always the single family office even at hundreds of millions of dollars does not want to do everything in-house they still need someone for cash management they still need someone to do due diligence on fund managers they're not going to travel all over the world doing that themselves typically in more than one industry they still need to manage their liquids you know uh and things that are semi-liquid and be in etfs and uh different real estate vehicles etc so uh even the ones who try to do a lot of things internally uh there's still opportunities for a wealth manager or private banker to be managing a portion of that portfolio and continue to grow with the family as a trusted advisor i think one of the things that you know just sh- uh, to to shift topics a little bit mm-hmm. um you know, one of the things that I find to be true, and really I think the premise of this um, this entire podcast that I do and this and, and this and this uh, all of my content is that there seems to be, um, in my view, sort of two sets or two rules uh, or paradigms to investing. Um, one is sort of for the poor and middle class, um, but also the upper middle class fall on that too, because there's really not a lot of tools for that group. Um, however, people who may say mid six figures uh, are often just investing the same possible, the same way that, you know, the middle class piece, somebody who's, who's making 30 or $40,000 a year, but the affluent really invest differently. Don't they? I mean, they, there is a different style. It's not like you're just going to take, um, you know, Porsche say stock bonds and mutual funds and, 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 you know, hand them off to one wealth manager and, and off you go. There's a lot, there's a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. You're so right. I, my latest project that I'm most excited about is um, documenting the top headaches of centimillionaires, hundred million dollar net worth clients. And one of them is this control issue is that when you're a self-made individual, it's usually through exerting your strategic influence on yeah. a portfolio or an operating business or a real estate development strategy. And so it's very unnatural to say, oh, okay, well, I've created 20 million or 140 million of net worth. Now let me just hand it over to uh, my banker or wealth manager and let him diversify it like crazy. And then I'll just sit back here and retire and play golf. It's really not in the DNA of most self-made people. And so usually uh, most of my clients have you know, you never want to uh, take any advice from anyone that you hear on a podcast and use it for investing. But like, just to give you a picture of like a broad stroke, there's a lot of families that are self-created will put 20 to 25% in cash flow in real estate assets, even if they didn't make their money in real estate. They'll take then a healthy percentage and put it back into the industry where they created their wealth because they have an information advantage, resource advantage, connections. Maybe uh, they're seen as a titan of that space and they have great deal flow. And then they'll put some of that traditional bucket and those percentages should change drastically based on who those people are and what their risk preferences and time horizons are, obviously. So I don't like to like say the percentages too much, but I think that when you say that they invest differently, I see that when you get to third, fourth generation, a lot of times the family lose their money because they diversify to death and they're just playing defense, 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 and they're no longer propelling the wealth forward through entrepreneurship, through being thrifty, resourceful, creating value in businesses. They're just playing a diversification defense. And I think that is the game that a lot of um, high net worth and those that are middle class or even affluent sometimes 
get into playing, but it's not how the ultra wealthy became ultra wealthy. And they know that. And so exerting control in their investments, transparency for a percentage of their holdings uh, is really important. And then we can talk as well about real estate and debt and, uh, you know, leveraging strategies like that. But I think that's something core to the mentality of a lot of, of, a lot of these families. Yeah. You know, it's, what's funny is when you call what you call um, playing defense uh-huh. really is the paradigm for most of, <laughs> you know, most of everybody else. Right. I mean, right. right. It's, 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 what do they tell you to do? Just hand money. And it's basically a wealth preservation thing and mutual right. funds that are, uh, you know, for most people are very high fees and, you know, they're making three, three and a half percent per year. Uh, on average, if you look over the past three decades, that's defense, sure. that's really defense. Sure. And that's all we really kind of see a lot of the times for, for the majority of the people out there. And, you know, um, and that sort of takes me to the, the other part of my thesis, which is that um, many of those strategies of the ultra wealthy, and, and you talked about real estate, for example, are actually available to country club accredited investors, like a lot of my listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. But but most people don't even know about them. And what do you, what do you right. think of that? For sure, it's true. For sure. And I think that... Um... There's so many, so many answers. Uh, you know, we can talk for an hour on that exact thing you just said because it's so interesting. But uh, there's a lot of real estate investments that, you know, you might have collateral behind it. For example, a yogurt company came to me one time and we did due diligence on this investment and they needed to raise capital. No one would lend company to this yogurt company, but the family owned a condo uh, overlooking Central Park that was worth $1.5 million. And they'd, they'd be willing to put that up as collateral if the family office gave them a million dollars as a debt note, they would pay out 10%. Uh, but if they failed to pay that, you could collect on the condo uh, and you would get title to the condo and you, you would own it. So it's kind of one of those things where like, you either get 10% or you get a condo in Central Park that you could sell within a week given how New York works with real estate. Right. So, uh, and your downside there actually ends up being in the upside. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and this guy is uh, not like a loan to, to own type mentality. But, um, you know, the deal happened to be too small for the investor to bother with. But it's a good example of, you know, families who get a lot of deal flow, they start feeling like they're drowning in normal. And what you're talking about is that the high net worth don't even get a taste of what's normal for the ultra wealthy to see. So the advantage is that the ultra wealthy not only have a lot of access to these ideas, which in themselves on average are probably sometimes better for uh, investment, but also when you see so many ideas, uh, you know, choosing the standard deviations away from the norm, the the abnormal deals uh, is what the families are looking for. So they start to feel like after a few years of being a family office that they're drowning in normal. Everyone's got the same private equity offering, real estate offering, but that's a healthy thing so that, you know, if you're only getting 10 deals a year, your top 10% of deals, you've got one to choose from. If you're getting a thousand deals a year, your top 10% is a hundred to choose from. So you can go to the top 1% and just consider those top 10 for hardcore due diligence. So your ability to go a couple standard deviations out on lean fees, amazing team, credible asset you can do thorough due diligence on something you understand how it makes money so you're not investing in some cannabis crypto mobile app that promises to make you rich but you actually know the mechanics of how they're creating value i think that that's a really big part of you know having a family office really help you is is having all those things happen naturally over a couple of years is there um 
is there a general sentiment among uh, these larger investors right now about you know the way the economy uh, is right now and a, a general trend maybe that is is dictating uh, behaviors? For sure. I mean, everyone knows that we're late in the real estate game. So starting three, four years ago, people started to say they're net sellers. Uh, the tax uh, law got changed and people now are, are saying most often, because we, we run 20 events, 20 conferences a year with 400 investors on stage per year at the Family Office Club and our events. And so we get a lot of these opinions coming. And uh, essentially what we hear is that People are only investing in uh, distressed or value add or areas where they have their downside really well protected because they know we're not early in the game. They're holding on a little bit more cash than usual, but they feel like having a president who knows a lot about commercial real estate and is a commercial real estate owner helps and the tax uh, law uh, helped for sure. And so I think that almost everyone is kind of cautiously optimistic. And uh, But one advantage these families have is that the market goes down they typically are sitting on enough cash in general. And now that they have been kind of net sellers for two to four years already, uh, perhaps if the market goes down, they're just going to be able to acquire more assets and grow their wealth further. And some might say, uh, you know, oh, well, that's, that's kind of unfair because the rest of us get hurt because we're all in the broader market. But it's kind of to your point of, you know, being able to structure things that protect your downside and being able to structure things where you have some control and can work out of situations, et cetera. I think is like is one of those benefits that you're kind of alluding to earlier. One of the other things that I've found, and again, having worked with some operators who are, are frequently involved with family offices, is that, you know, this is, this is again, this is one of those things that you would never see in the high net worth world. But I mean, I, um, you know, I have some eager investors in my group who are always sending me a, a an offering memorandum and saying, "Hey, what do you think?" And right. my response is always. I don't know anything about this group and I don't care what the numbers look like. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I have not done any due diligence. And at the end of the day, relationships are such a big part of this for me. And I can't imagine that that same idea, which I call tribal investing, right? It's almost like a, um, a group of people who, you know, have, you know, operators or people who they go to who on their end have a very good track record and they also have a sense of responsibility to perform, right? So there's, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, everybody's, everybody is getting, um, getting richer. Everybody is, you know, doing well because of this trust factor. Do you feel like there's that kind of, you know, upper echelon community um, that, that people benefit from uh, as well? For sure. I mean, on multiple levels, there is. And, um, you know, it comes from learning from best practices from other really smart people. And you only get access to those people because of maybe what groups you're in. And maybe it's a golf club that costs 250000 a year. So you get to golf with smart people who have been successful. Uh, or it might be being a YPO or Tiger or something else. And I think that uh, it also comes from just being well-known in a space and being able to write that check. You're going to see deals that smaller investors won't ever see. And just seeing those deals makes you be very aware of where the market is and you gain extra insight. And so you just get extra invitations, extra looks, and sometimes can benefit from the due diligence of others. But, you know, I think some families get burned because they'll just invest in a deal because of a sense of tribal kind of trust existing when really they should do their own thorough due diligence. Yeah. 
So sometimes people get, you know, driven off a cliff by stuff like that. Um, and it doesn't often make the press because people don't want to talk about losing their money. So I do think that um, it can be, when you talked about the default mode being diversification, I was kind of laughing because I just feel like in direct investing, if you're not careful, it can be the opposite of what could be a de-risking strategy. So if you're investing in a mobile app and then a biotech company and then a cannabis you know, uh, retail center and then an office building and you let those investments play out over seven years, you're gonna learn in each of those niches, but then how does that really connect unless your expertise is debt structuring or how you syndicated the deal? The strategic fruits that are born off of each of those things, you'll be lucky if even one or two of them connect at all. And so the thing is, if you focus on an area, an industry, a sector, an industry that you've had experience in and made wealth in, then you can do due diligence faster. You see more deal flow. You see deals first. You'll get a better valuation on a deal because you can be on the strategic board and they know you can add value and take them places and open distribution and open doors to other investors because you are the titan of the space. And there's like such a number of benefits that even if you even if your industry is horrible and you made your money there, but you're just so glad to be out, put in a flag in the ground in a couple areas that you know is a, a not risky percentage of your portfolio and just building that expertise at least is something really important because it's going to bear strategic fruits, but you can't eat any of that fruit if your trees are all over the place and you're growing all different types of crops, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and um, you know, I think the other thing is when you're just playing a defensive game, like everybody else does, I mean, you don't, um, you know, it, it's really hard to grow your money and, um, uh, without having some specialization in something where you might be able to get ahead rather than just, you know, right. not lose. And, and, you know, that's, that's something that I see a lot with investors. And I, honestly, I think it's, it's a particularly big problem these days just because of the economy and, um, you know, with the debt and, uh, you know, I'm sure you know, uh, you guys probably follow, we've had a number of economists on the show who talk about this potential demographic cliff in, in, in another, you know, 10 years or so um, and, and what that could do with the economy. I just worry about the future of people playing a defensive, purely defensive game at this point. Um, right. But, yeah. Right. I mean, I think uh, connected to that, I think it's really important to mention that um, some of the investments that high net worth are most exposed to are the worst types of direct investments. So they're going to be introduced to the Kickstarter campaign or the equity funding thing on some social media platform that gets blasted to millions of high net worth people. Or they're going to hear about their friends, you know, uh, latest hot, you know, blockchain technology consulting firm. And I think it's really important to point out that the people who do the best in direct investing almost never invest in startups unless it's right in their backyard and they know that yep. field so well. And they usually even then take the control and uh, position. They're usually investing in companies that have survived in the ocean, they've climbed up to the sand, they've been producing a profit for a while, and then they go in and take a controlling stake or a significant stake and really drive that value up. So even if they know what they're doing, they know that most businesses fail, most teams fail, and a new idea that hasn't been proven with the team before, hasn't been proven in the marketplace before, the pricing isn't proven, the execution, the consistency of the executives, et cetera. It's just such a high level of risk. I don't want anyone to hear this and be like, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I'm going to invest in my four friends, you know, crazy ideas for their startups. Uh, family offices rarely invest in startups. It could be a couple of percentage points of their total portfolio, but they usually are going into companies they're already producing 
the very low end, 200, 500,000 a year profit, but usually they're looking at a million profit a year or a couple million in profit a year to really take the business seriously. And the larger the family, then usually the more profits they look for before they invest. So tell me um, one other thing that I, I want to talk about a little bit, because we haven't covered this before. Something uh -huh. that I have been exploring and learning more about. There's some, some, some financial products that um, are available out there and, and to, to a certain extent, not to just to decamillionaires but, mm -hmm. that are not investments per se, but even say life insurance products, things like that. Why do you think it is that people who, if, for example, let's take premium financing, uh, IULs, for example, and a number of my high net worth friends are using some kind of, you know, I, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, insurance based, uh, growth because of the tax advantages, because of the, you know, estate planning benefits and all that. Mm -hmm. Why do we not hear about this in sort of the, the, uh, you know, the upper middle class world when, when a lot of these things are actually available? Well, what's interesting is that as some of these products uh, are not used by a lot of family offices, even uh, not as high a percentage as they should. And part of it is it takes a while to get educated and understand what options make sense for somebody. So the high net worth individual doesn't get as much benefit as the family office. So they have less patience to learn and less desire to save that, you know, five, 10, 20 percent on taxes. Uh, and then also the salesperson knows there's family offices out there or, you know, $20 million, $10 million net worth people they could be educating. So they don't take time sometimes to educate yeah. the smaller people. And then also, I think there's a feeling of mistrust of financial advisors globally. I think most people feel like uh, they don't know what the different types of life insurance there are. And if they know someone who does know a lot, they're probably trying to sell them as big a plan as possible. And after being educated, the recommendation will be to spend a whole bunch of money on life insurance. That's like typically what's in the back of people's brains when they get any type of financial advice. And um, I think it's important for people to kind of address that, you know, at the forefront, if you're in the financial advisory business, even at the wealth management or multifamily office level, um, there's a feeling that, you know, is the person going to just try to manage like all my wealth right out of the gates even though maybe, you know, you're not comfortable with that at the beginning. So I just feel like uh, there's a lot of work to be done on like the industry's half on just kind of taking an educational kind of client first approach to things. Yeah, I think and in the, and, and particularly for I think for the upper, upper middle class, I am a uh, I am a physician by trade. I don't practice. I haven't practiced in a couple of years now, um, okay. luckily for me. But I will tell you that. Um, you know, when I finished my training, it was only, you know, 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. I had every, uh, you know, financial advisor um, out there trying to trying to get my business. And right. I, you know, I, I was not, um, I, I would say, very financially sophisticated at the time. Um, but instinctually, I kind of had this, um, you know, this, this, this uh, d lack of trust, as you called it. Sure. And, um, in retrospect, when I look back at a lot of the products that were offered to me, I'm I'm glad I did, you know, mistrust them because now I'm looking at it from a different lens. Now I'm seeing like, for example, if you take life insurance in particular, you know, I'm looking at overfunding products, et cetera, that, that actually make a lot of financial sense. And those were never even brought up to me. And when I found out about them and I talked to people who were trying to sell me the initial products, 
they acted like they had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> right, right. It shows how complex it, it all is, right. I guess, on one level. And I, I think that uh, one thing I've been uh, seeing a lot recently is that deals just don't get done unless there's a lot of trust uh, in the process. And there has to be trust with the individual and the team. There has to be trust in kind of the industry or the ecosystem surrounding the idea. And there has to be a lot of trust in the idea itself. So I think that there has to be trust on all three levels. And, um, you know, lots of times it's missing. And so those listening that are raising capital for something, uh, you might have gone to friends and family first because they're way up that trust curve on who you are. But once you get past that, you really have to think, you know, is this person, you know, close to the self-storage asset I'm raising capital for in Denver? If so, okay, great. It'll be easy to build their trust on that. But, you know, if you live in uh, Toronto and they're in Denver, you know, it might be hard to move up that trust curve with you individually. So I think being aware of those three trust curves is something that a lot of people raising capital miss. And I see it all the time at our, our family office club events. People run around. They think they have the deal of a lifetime, but no one knows who they are. And they might not even be interested in their industry. And so they really need to narrow their focus and build trust first, you know. Tell me about those events you're t- uh, that, that you do, uh, the, the family sure. office. And do you have one coming up anytime soon? Um, and who are they appropriate for? Sure. Yeah, we've done uh, 100 conferences over the past 11 years. We've had over 25,000 people attend. We have 5,000 people a year come to our 20 events per year now. 10 of those events per year are investor summits, and then 10 of them are investor relations uh, workshops where we train people in capital raising and kind of a boot camp you know, a small group exercise format. And we have uh, at one of our standard events, there's 30 investors speaking on stage, six or seven sponsors who might be raising capital for something or serving the family office space. And we have them in uh, Toronto, London, New York, Miami, San Francisco, Dallas, Chicago, just spread out all over the US and Canada and Europe. And, um, you know, our next couple of events, we have our our real estate investor summit, uh, September 21st, our deal flow summit, October 12th, and then our thousand person Family Office Super Summit is actually December 10th and 11th uh, down here in Miami. And uh, those are our next next three events. So we pretty much have, you know, one to two events happening each month. Where can uh, where can we learn more about those events? Is there a website you can give us or something? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, familyoffices.com. And then right on the homepage, there'll be just uh, blocks. And you'll be able to see the rundown of all the event schedule. And Importantly, our whole business model, uh, you know, like you, is just to give away as much value as possible, just to build kind of a business friendship before anyone spent a single dollar with us. So we have a free book on familyoffices.com and YouTube channel, and we're just, we're just always producing as much as we can and giving away as much as we can on this niche because the whole industry is just so inefficient and confusing and secretive in general. Richard Wilson, everyone. Richard, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Okay. So what did Richard Wilson tell you? Well, he talked about defensive investing, right? Stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, the way most people do it. And what did he say about that? He said that that's basically how families of generational money that get squandered down the line It ultimately happens because people are only playing defense. Well, guess what? The vast majority of investing that happens uh, in this country from the poor, the middle class, and even the upper middle class is all defensive, right? It's all stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and let's sure just hope for 1% or 2% growth per year. 
That's what Richard said. That's how you lose money. That's not what the rich are doing. He talked about the high, uh, the ultra wealthy growing their money with real estate and investing in businesses and other types of real assets. He also talked about how they often allocate a small portion of their portfolio to more speculative things like startups and technology. He even said that more family offices should be using various life insurance products to help grow their wealth. Products that we've been talking about on Wealth Formula Podcast. All you have to do is is listen to me talk about Wealth Formula Banking and Velocity Plus. This is what uh, Velocity Plus in particular comes from that whole ultra high net worth world of a product called premium financing IULs. So I'm not making this up. I'm seeing people do this and I'm just bringing the stuff down to you because you can use it too. Now, if you're a listener of mine, you know, all these things that Richard said, well, they actually sound pretty familiar, don't they? Well, it's because I'm trying to bring these concepts from the family office to you because I don't want you to keep investing like you have no money because that's effectively what you're doing when you're following the herd of conventional financial wisdom. Now, that's who I watch, right? I watch the family offices. I don't emulate the bloggers and the podcasters who've never seen more than six zeros in their life. Who you want to follow at the end of the day is your decision. But if you want to be rich, this much I can tell you, you have to do as the rich do, not as the broke. Anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safety with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.